my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not give me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let's pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
triumph still abide with me hold out thy cross be for my closing eyes shine through the gloom and point me to Isaiah 5, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? that I have not done in it. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall, show up, shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God and all my life you have been Breath that I am made 
Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading, Carla. Well, good morning, uh, saints of defiance at a distance again. I can tell you that I am not getting used to this nor enjoying it. Um, And there's part of this season in which we find ourselves in that we spoke of last week that it is perhaps for us to find ourselves with discomfort and with struggle in this time in which God has has um, uh, 
seen this this sickness unleashed upon the earth and and for us to sort of join in the mourning and the and the sorrow of what it is and to pray for this time to be short but one of the things two weeks ago when we met together i said is is sometimes the the meaning for the church is to keep going on as if nothing had happened is to keep going on as if the words that we read and the ways that we worship and the ways that we are together are the meaning that we need when everything else wants us to pick new meaning. And so last Sunday, I surrendered to the, to the need to, to talk about uh, the virus and what's happening in our world and to provide some, some words there. Um, but I think one of the things we've talked about a lot as in our church is, is how Christianity might be the training to live in the silences to not always have the words to say, to not always have to explain things away, to not always have the solutions. Um, and so this Sunday, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, well, we're going to jump forward a little bit, but we're going to continue our journey with the Gospel of Luke. And then next Sunday, um, we're going to try and do something a little bit more different in experiencing both Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday together. We'll read the Passion account and the Palm Sunday account, interspersed with music with a short sermon to sort of draw us in to the beginning of Holy Week. And then Easter, God knows, uh, <laughs> uh, we have ideas and stuff, but we can only think a week at ahead during this time, apparently. But what Carla read for us is this parable from after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he's teaching in the temple courts. Now, one of the things about this parable is that it seems Jesus is speaking to the crowds, but at the end of it, the leaders know that he's talking directly to them. Jesus is addressing the crowds that have gathered there. And, and at the end of Luke's gospel, um, the last couple chapters, there's, sort of, there's always this dialogue between Jesus, his disciples, the crowds, and then the religious leaders. And there's a couple of other characters who show up. But if you're reading through it, which we've encouraged you to do, notice who he's talking to and when he's talking to different people because that will draw out different meanings for you. The religious leaders so far in Luke's gospel have set themselves up against and antagonistic towards Jesus' ministry. Um, the crowds have been in favor and have opposed, which I think some people think is meant to resonate with the people reading it. You feel drawn to this guy. You feel pushed apart at the same time. And then the disciples are the, the people who are insiders, struggling to grasp this thing, but are there. And so it's worth paying attention to who Jesus is with and who he's talking to. But in this parable, he's talking to the crowds, but he speaks uh, in a parable that accuses the leaders in the end. Another thing about this parable is it's an allegory that seems larger than life. Everything stands for something. There is no sort of flat reading of this parable. And we'll talk uh, about what everything stands for here in a moment. And, and one of the things that I love as a description of this parable, whenever I'm doing study and the word defiance shows up, um, I notice its context. But, but they say this one is, the, is told in defiance of historical realism. Everybody seems a little bit off in their response into what is happening. This is not a realistic parable in some ways, or at least not one that you would want to emulate. Um, nobody's making good choices here, it seems like, at times. But as an outline for where, how we're going to sort of talk about this parable today, the first thing it tells us about is the long-suffering love of God. The second thing it tells us about is the incredible sinfulness of humanity. 
The third thing it tells us about is the centrality and the finality of sending the Son. The fourth is the urgency of judgment and the time that we have. And the fifth thing is this transfer among the nations of sort of what's happening with the end of the parable and the religious leaders at this point. But this microcosm of history tells us so much. The first thing that stands for something in which that brings us to this long-suffering love of God is that the vineyard is this place that historically has been what God has built and provided for Israel. In the Isaiah reading that Hampton read during the worship service, you heard of God building this vineyard and making this place for Israel. God has loved these people and he set them up to succeed and to grow and to do well in the world. God has set up a nice place for them to reside. And it's from this vineyard, you could imagine, that the fruits of which are there for them to be a light unto the nations, a gift unto the world, that God has provided a good and safe place for Israel to live so that they may shine forth the truth and goodness of what God wants to show humanity. God's long-suffering love begins with this vineyard he has provided for his people. God has made a place in the world for Israel, and so too God has made a place in the world for his church. What the parable says next, though, is that after this man planted the vineyard and rented it to some farmers, he went away for a long time. This fits with Israel's sort of um, narrative of itself, is that God comes near to them at times with prophets and messages. Most clearly it begins near in the, fo the founding um, the Exodus stories in Genesis up to Deuteronomy is these stories of God being near and that God comes and corrects and teaches the people through the prophets. So God is this one who has set up this vineyard but has gone away for some time. But at harvest time, and this teaches us about that long-suffering love of God and the incredible sinfulness of humanity, this man who has set up this vineyard sends his servants to give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Prophets come. Teachers come. God comes to his people to correct and to see how they're doing. He comes to receive some of the gifts. But what happens is the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. God set a place for Israel in the world, and when, and when he comes and sends these messengers to correct and to give life and to bring them back onto the path, oftentimes they beat them and send them away. So too it is at times with the church as well. When somebody comes to check on the fruit, to point out the errors of our way, it seems more likely that we would rather beat them and send them along the way than return something to them. And this happens with another servant. They also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away. And still he sends a third, and they wound him and throw him out. Matthew's gospel, they even kill some of these people who come. That these people, in their rejection of this vineyard that God has provided for them, have beaten and thrown out those whom they've warned. Now here's the first part about this parable that's a little hard to believe uh, in defiance of historical realism is what person keeps sending these people and letting them get beat up over and over and over again? 
The second thing it reminds me of, and, and the servants are these stand-ins for sort of the prophets and the people who come to Israel, but it reminds me of people, and you've probably met people like in this in your life, is I just want to be a servant of the Lord. Well, in this parable, the servants of the Lord are those who end up beaten and stricken and not often welcomed. It should be a challenge for us, and we should strive to be servants of the Lord, but oftentimes we mean that we just want to do the things that God would have us to do and have it all work out okay. To be a servant of the master, to be a servant of God who's planted a vineyard in the world, and to tend to it is to also deal with the rejection of human sinfulness. If it happened for the prophets and it happened for God's son, how much too may it happen to us as we set ourselves to be God's servants in this place? But these servants are these stands in for the prophets that come, and they end up beaten and cast out question the sanity of the vineyard sending three but then the owner of the vineyard but then it says the owner or the master of the vineyard this said what shall I do I will send my son whom I love perhaps they will respect him that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense um, and in the, the phrase the son whom I love is this um, same phrase that we hear in the baptism scene that we talked about in Luke's gospel is that is that this is God's son whom I love is what he discloses in the baptism scene and it's the same thing he discloses at the transfiguration scene now the listeners to this parable the people who heard it don't have those scenes at hand at max maybe three disciples have the transfiguration scene in their minds but for the rest of us uh, for the rest of the readers, or for the rest of the hearers of this, they have not heard the voice at the baptism, this is my son whom I love, and they have not heard the voice at the transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. But for the reader, and this is why I've, I've, I've kept saying, and we have time now in this time of quarantine, to read these things all the way through, because you would notice this parallel, is that this is the son whom God loves. Jesus is speaking of himself. And what shall I do? I'll send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. This speaks of the centrality of the sending of the son and the finality of it. There was a time of prophets and there was a time of people. And what happens in these final days is God sends his sons to speak to his people. Now, I forgot to mention is that it seems like the, the people tending the vineyard, if you follow Israel's sort of reading of this, is that they're not the people of Israel. They're the religious leaders of Israel. And some people will read this parable to negate sort of um, the history of what God has done with Israel, but, but Israel is the vineyard, the chosen people of God. And while God's um, vineyard may have new tenants, Gentiles who come in, God ha- doesn't abandon his faithfulness in the world. This is a warning to those religious leaders. So he says, I will send my son whom I love. The last of the prophets tells us of this great love that God has for these people that he would put his son at risk. There's a way in which you can even read this next part is that that they um, think of him as their only son. Because his only son, because when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
The one who comes from the master is quickly disregarded in this parable. The son, the one who's come to reveal and do God's bidding. Now what's amazing about this part of it in, in defiance of historical realism is this is most likely not how it would work in the ancient world. Well, the master is gone, you kill the son, the vineyard is yours. Um, there's some uh, um, squatter's rights, like we have in America, that may have played itself out. But if you were known as the group of people who had killed the master's son, it's unlikely that they would just give the land to you. But this, I think, fits with that incredibility of human sinfulness, is that when we go down these paths, we don't always think through things clearly. If you remember the story of David and, and Bathsheba, is that um, it takes uh, the prophet coming in and telling them the parable of the man who had one sheep and the guy who had lots of sheep killing them before he realizes that all he had done was wrong. It didn't come to him clearly. Often when we build our own cycles of sin and rejection, we think this is how things will work out. And this is an aside, but I was listening to a podcast with a psychologist I like, and he said, I've sat with lots of people, and nobody gets away with everything. The truth comes out eventually. That's an aside for us to consider in our lives as many of us try and try to hide and to get away, but not realizing that when things are revealed to the light, they become clean and we can work through them. But these people think not clearly. Their minds are dimmed by the fact that they might be able to inherit this whole land, that the vineyard will be yours. And so they cast the son outside and murder him. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus suffered outside the camp. Jesus is not killed in the temple or in Jerusalem, but on a hill outside of the camp, outside of the city. When the light comes into the world, it's sometimes up for us to turn around and to squash it as best as we can. And this is when... Jesus asked the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. When the people ha heard this, they said, God forbid. Now, if you're reading this from my perspective as it was this week, that seems like their irrational response. Um, if these people have murdered and killed and beaten this guy's servants and then killed his only son, what should the master of the vineyard do? There is in this time an economy set up of, of sort of masters of these land keepers um, who work and till the land and then absentee landlords. And many of the people probably listening to this parable were people who worked on these farms. They haven't killed the master's son, but certainly if the masters of their vineyards are going to be justified in responding with this kind of violence to, to slight, they might say, no, that's not what he should do. Um, but they're not getting what this parable is about yet. Jesus looked directly at them and said, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He turns at this time. What he says is from that psalm that we opened the service with is that the stone that the builders have said that this is not good enough turns and becomes the cornerstone. 
This is about a king in Israel. What happens is, is that this king is rejected and it becomes the cornerstone in the end. Now, there are two ways of sort of looking at this, but, but the cornerstone goes on the top of these arches in some of the ancient world. And one of the things that I think that we can helpfully see what God is doing through using this parable is he's building up both on one side of the parable those people whom he has called originally in Israel and completing on the other side the people of the Gentiles that are being concluded into the covenant and that this will become the cornerstone that opens up this arch. But it also points out that God is building a temple in the world of these people and that God will be with them. But he continues to what we call the urgency of justice, uh, judgment at the beginning. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and anyone whom it falls on will be crushed. The day of the Lord in the book of Daniel is pictured as this huge stone that's rolling down the hill that eventually crushes that last empire, which is Rome. This is a stone that calls for us in our lives to know what we are doing because it will crush and break into pieces those who fall on it and those whom it moves towards, that this momentum of the stone is in the world. Here he ends the parable, and it says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people chief priests and the teacher of the law set themselves to kill Jesus. As we end, the last two things I want to talk about. One is I know many of you are missing my artwork. Um, you wish you could be here to see this. There is no artwork today because there's no one here, um, such, as, such as the case. But if you want to think about this as sort of three poles stretched out on a timeline, there is Israel in the beginning of this timeline planted as God's vineyard. And then there is this next pole in the timeline, which is the murdered and vindicated son of God, which is not quite in the parable. It, it says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, is that the son whom the vineyard um, workers reject becomes the one who's vindicated by God, becomes the cornerstone is what it says. So you have the first pole, which is the planning of Israel, the second, which is the murdered son. And in between those two poles, you have the time of the prophets and of God calling back for these people. Going forward from the murdered and vindicated son of God, you have the return of the master. This is what we await here. See, as I've read this parable many times in my life, I think that the parable is over. But this parable is not over yet. God's son has been rejected and vindicated, has become the cornerstone. But we as Christians, not living in the age of the prophets, still await the return of the master in this judgment. This is what caused out the urgency of this parable. And so we live in the time between those two poles, the murder and vindicated son and the return of God. And this should call us to faithfulness and confession in the present. I've long tried to think of one of my favorite scenes of the West Wing, how to use it in a sermon. And it's always been a stretch. Today I don't think it's as much of a stretch, but I also think nobody's here, 
why not go for it? So I want to describe this scene for you as best as I can. Um, and you can watch it on YouTube. I'll put it in the email maybe this week and you can watch it. But what happens is, is the president of the United States in the West Wing, Jeb Bartlett, uh, Bartlett 2020, if you want to know who I'm voting for, Jeb, uh, the president of the West Wing, um, has been agonizing one laugh. You're all laughing at home, I assume. Um, the president in the West Wing has been agonizing all day over how to commute the sentence. The president himself does not believe in the death penalty. Um, he's a robust Catholic, and he doesn't want this first death sentence that appeals up to him for commuting of it to, to not happen. And so in the course of the day, he talks to a Quaker who tells him that this shouldn't happen. He talks to a rabbi who tells him that vengeance is the Lord. And finally, he talks to a priest, and all of them point out to him the truth that this is not God's will for this moment. And so at the end of the day, when this man is about to be executed at midnight, because um, I forget what state he's in, but we don't execute people on the Sabbath. And so they're executing him on midnight on Monday morning, Saturday morning, Monday morning, uh, Christian Sabbath. Anyways, um, the, priest, his, his, the priest he grew up with comes into the Oval Office, and the priest says to him, you know, can I call you Mr. President or can I call you Jeb? Um, and he said, you know, in the office, I prefer to be called uh, Mr. President. And it's interesting, the titles, if you've watched the show, is what happens is, is, is the, the priest begins to talk to the president, and he addresses him as Mr. President the whole time. The president, Jeb, talks back to the priest, but never uses the title father. Something's gone wrong in the vineyard in this scene. And what happens is, is the president is agonizing over his decision. He knows it's about the time and the priest is there. And finally the priest says to him, you remind me of the man um, in the floodplain. And what happened is the water started to rise and there was a radio report and the radio said um, there's a flood. If you're in this floodplain, you have to get out, you have to move on. And the man said, I'm religious, I pray my God will save me. And then after time, as the waters were rising, a boat came by, and, and the man was near the top of his house, and the, the boat said to the man, get in, we'll take you to safety. And he said, no, no, I'm pious, I'm a good man, I'm a religious man, I pray. My God will save me. Finally, the man is on his roof as the water continues to rise, and the uh, helicopter comes by and says, we'll land and we'll pick you up. We'll bring you to safety. And the man says, no, my God will stop the waters. I'm a good person. Um, I pray my God will save me. The priest tells the president, um, you know, the man dies. And he gets to the pearly gates and he demands an audience with God. And he says to God, look, I was in this flood. Uh, the waters were rising. I prayed and I thought you would save me. And God says to him, I sent a radio report. I sent a boat. I sent a helicopter. What the hell are you doing here? But then, and this is why it's always been hard to fit into a sermon, because that's a nice story, and this, that, and the other. But what changes in the scene is that somebody comes into the office and tells the president that the man has been executed. And the priest says to the president, Jeb, not Mr. President, would you like to give your confession? 
And the president gets on his knees and says, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. In this time, in between the two poles for Christians, it is for us to live faithfully and to live lives of confession. Being given God's spirit through Jesus on the cross, we have this ability to live faithfully, to be proper vineyard owners, to to be the people who offer their fruits back to God. And yet at the same time, we have the possibility of living in rejection of that truth, of not accepting the news that God has preached to us through his building of the vineyard, through his law in the Torah, through his prophets who's come to Israel, and most of all, his beloved son. This is what the priest says, is that that God sent you a Quaker, a rabbi, and a priest, and not to mention his only son. For us, this parable, may it inspire in us towards lives of faithfulness and to where we fall short. Confession and the goodness and the long-suffering love of God. Let us pray. God, we turn to you as people of your vineyard at this time, of the sheep of your pasture. And we ask that this parable in this time between your murdered son and your return as master, we would live faithful lives, that we would live being drawn into your goodness and your truth. And God, in this time that we have when we fail, may it inspire within us the confession that we have neglected your vineyard. We have neglected your world. We have neglected your truth. You have given and instructed us in your son, Jesus Christ. May we hear those words to live faithful lives. May we accept your forgiveness and our failure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
thrown into the midst of the sea. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are upon you. Through it all, through it all, it is well. Now is our time of confession. We know what it is called for us to live faithful lives because of what God has told us through his son and through the prophets. And so we say if we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, let us confess our sin to God. 
Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your word and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Let us hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone and a new life has begun. Know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen. And in this time in which we are unable to be together and to practice communion together, we've taken to um, reciting uh, the Apostles' Creed at this time. Um, but first, let us pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into power, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power forever and ever. And now let us confess the faith that has been handed down to us. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
Well, now would normally be our offering. Um, thank you for those of you who have given online already, and thank you to those who have sent in your checks. Um, we continue to ask that as we go through this time together. And also our time of prayer together. Um, we're going to pray, pray the way in which we've been praying during morning prayer this past week on Zoom, if you'd like to join us. And please send me your prayer requests or email them to me or we can um, uh, speak them out now as we pray together. But it would be great to know how you are doing and what's going on with your lives. Satisfy us with your love in the morning and we will live this joy day in joy and praise. God, we offer our prayers to you. For an ailing world. One, in this time of virus, but two, in this time of confusion, anxiety, despair, and loneliness. God, be near to us in our own hearts. Settle our spirits. Relieve our anxieties. Free us to live our lives and days in joy and praise to you and your Son and the Holy Spirit. But also, God, through the transformation of our hearts and anxieties and desires, may we become a vineyard that can offer you gifts, can offer gifts on the sake of the world serve and love our neighbor, to love you with our whole heart and mind and strength. God, we pray for those who are shut in during this time, the loneliness that comes with that. We pray for those locked in with families at this time, that that may be time of goodness for them, of peace, but also for the struggles that are arising. God, this week we're aware of teachers from Skylark to the school district to other places that are coming back to teach again digitally. May their adapt adaptation to technology go smoothly, but may their hearts be settled. It would be hard to not have your students present to teach in a new format you've never taught in before. God, for those coming to learn that they may be attentive to this ever-changing thing. May we be exist in a time of holy discomfort and that this lack of relationship, this lack of being together, this lack of celebration that we can do with each other is not forever and is not the way you designed us. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you and promise through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come life everlasting. Amen.
invite you to stand and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 